What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode of Sick Individual Sick Populations, the podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. As many folks know, federal COVID-19 unemployment relief officially ended last month uh, on Labor Day of all days. And it's estimated that 8.5 million people lost their unemployment benefits. At the same time, according to the latest jobs report, there's about 10.9 million unfilled jobs in the economy. But not all of these unemployed folks have been flocking to the market for these jobs. A lot of folks have noted that part of the reason for this is that not all of these jobs are great jobs and many involve precarious work in the gig economy that aren't especially attractive to a burnt out workforce. To unpack this situation and give us some history and background, we're joined by sociologist Quan Mai today. Quan is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Rutgers. His scholarship focuses on how a range of social relations, including employment relations, race, ethnic relations, state regulatory capacity, and social movements combine in the economy, polity, and in urban spaces to influence processes of social stratification. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to have you. Oh, thank you so much for the kind introduction, and it's great to be here. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about, um, like burning issues that I think a lot of folks are worried about. So to start this off, can you explain to those of us who don't work on work and labor, how uh, work researchers define, you know, quote unquote, good and bad jobs, and what you call precarious work in your own research. And then I'm also sort of curious if you can give us the lay of the land of like, how bad is the situation out there, right? So like, are, is it like all bad jobs? What do these jobs tend to look like? You know, how worried should be we, how worried should we be about these bad or precarious jobs? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, as with many other subjects of academic inquiries, there are debates about which factor exactly constitute a good job and which features specifically differentiate between good and bad jobs, right? But uh, but generally there's a widely accepted set of criteria that are used to define good jobs or in terms of pay, the pay has to be decent, stable and there's room for um, increases in the future. Um, you know, the job has to provide adequate benefits. We're talking about health insurance, retirement benefits. Workers have good autonomy and control over their work activities. And um, there's some control over scheduling terms of employment and termination. So of course, we, we know that work arrangements do not operate binarily and the absence of one criterion doesn't automatically turn a good job into a bad one, but uh, this list serves as a good guideline. Um, in my own work, I tend to adopt the following definition for precarious work. So work that is uncertain, unstable, insecure, where employees rather than the employer or the government bear the risk of work and receive little benefit and statutory entitlement. So think about temporary agency workers, for instance, rather than working for 
uh, an organizations, they are matched with the organization by the temporary agency. Um, so they're not seen as employee uh, and they're not treated as such. Um, the employer rarely offers benefits such as health insurance uh, and retirement benefits. Their work are insecure since they can be terminated at any time and employers can send can end the contract without any legal repercussion or severance package. So other examples include on-call workers, um, you know, who have who report having certain days or hours in which they are not at work, but are on standby until called to work. And you can imagine how difficult it must be to schedule your day to perform tasks such as childcare, uh, when you're on call or in standby, right? And you can think about independent contractors, um, the individuals who, uh, who obtain customers on their own um, to provide to product a service to uh, provide a product or service, and compared to full-time employees who who know exactly when their paychecks arrive, who signed that paycheck, and what kind of numbers appear on those paychecks, uh, freelancers they operate in cycles that could of uh, in continuous cycles of finding projects and negotiating arrangement, and this could be a cycle of feast or famine, and. Um, Freelancers are commonly responsible for their own insurance and retirement account. Uh, parental and medical leave are guaranteed to produce income gaps. And uh, third, you know, and layoffs and changes in personal circumstances could lead to involuntary freelancing careers. And not everyone chooses to begin with. And the inconsistent, the uh, inconstant, inconsistent nature of income streams challenges freelancers' ability to to obtain loans and accumulate access. Uh, you know. Think about the cornerstones of the American dreams, right? A house, a car, um, you know, the nature of their income stream make them such undesirable applicants from the perspective of mortgage lenders and landlords, right? So I can guarantee you that if you look up the reviews of any lender out there, you'll find stories about how the credit industry still give non-standard workers a hard time. And it's just another example of how institutions hasn't caught up with the changes in the labor market. So, um, in terms of employment relations, the traditional nine to five uh, job characterized by long-term contract and benefit is, has, becoming, has been becoming less normative these days. Um, and as a part of a societal shift to the on-demand economy, the gig economy, or you know, the 1099s economy, we're seeing millions of workers joining the precarious workforce. And you know, we're, seeing more, we're seeing less W-2s and we're seeing more 10, uh, 1099s, right? So, the, the fact that this, uh, this emerging workforce is growing rapidly and contributing substantially to the, to the American economy. And as far as the proportion of, of jobs in the economy that fits into this category, estimates vary, but there are studies that report that the percentage of workers who engage in alternative work arrangement uh, defined as temporary agency workers, on-call workers, contract workers, or independent contractors um, increased from 10, from around like 11% in uh, 05 to possibly as high as 16% in 2015. So hmm. uh, in another research, um, the National Survey, the New Workforce, a uh, study commissioned by the Freelancers Union, uh, provides some quite astounding numbers. Uh, 53 million Americans represent, um, representing a, a third of the total workforce that bring in an annual total 17 billion to the national economy have uh, engage in supplemental temporary or project contract-based work in the past 12 months. Now, this could include um, moonlighters, which means people with a regular um, yeah. time jobs and just trying to make money on the side when they're off the clock. Um, so this number could seem high, but you know, 
Um, my, you know, this, the essence of the story here is regardless of the estimates, these numbers are substantial. Um, so then they, they merit academic and policy attention. I mean, some people even label this drastic change in the workforce, the industrial revolution of our time. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. yeah. so if your boss comes to you and says, can we start paying you with the 1099? Maybe you should be worried a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is bringing up, um, I must admit, some like childhood PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> so um, growing up in Detroit, um, which has a lot of labor history. And like you mentioned, um, the precariousness, even when you're in a in a shift job, when you have like a, a hourly rate, when people don't have any control over their schedule. So I remember my stepfather being on call um, to come into the steel plant. He was always in a bad mood. Um, he was always <laughs> The, the flows, he was on nights, he was on days. Um, so just that that temperament, the mood, it affected so much in the household um, and health behavior. So I have so many questions, but I'll try to stick to our <laughs> our script and, and think about a little bit about the, the social political context and how we got into, like you said, this rise of this really precarious shift gig work um, economy and just kind of curious about again from that that shift from what I'm talking about like the old hourly wage type of jobs that used to be good and secure that are vanishing been vanishing for for a long time for my entire life <laughs> lifetime um, and then this shift to this this gig work so could you speak a little bit about some of the the social political factors that got us here Sure. Yeah, and we'll have a you know we'll you know I'll spend some time talking about some of the consequences of uh, of the arrangements that you mentioned too. Uh, so since since the last four decades or so, so in, for the entirety of my lifetime, uh, possibly yours, um, the nature of work in the U.S. has changed just dramatically, right? Uh, in in my own work and uh, and in research by scholars at different disciplines, uh, you know. There's, we've been linking a number of changes in the American socioeconomic landscapes uh, to the rise of non-standard work. I mean, there are various historical, industrial, political, and even ideological and cultural causes yeah. for, for this rise. So globalization and deregulation, it increases the competitive pressure of American firms, uh, it gives these organizations just a lot of incentive to outsource work mm -hmm. to lower wage countries. So we're talking about jobs in manufacturing industries, including computer, electronic parts, plastic, rubber products, textiles, apparel, furniture. And these jobs used to be the desirable ones, right? Solid incomes, uh, good benefit, this and prospects. Um, but a lot of these jobs are no longer available to to domestic market workers, and being from Detroit, uh, I'm sure you've, uh, you know, you know, having spent some time in Detroit, uh, you, you might have heard a few of these stories. Um, and uh, you know, there are political policies replacing the welfare with workfare in the 1980s, right? That ties um, that ties um, benefits to work. So these policies make it critical for workers to maintain paid employment in order to access to any form of welfare. Uh, welfare and um, there's also a need for a more flexible workforce now. So we these days we hear terms like flexible, agile, nimble a mm -hmm. lot, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, some of it is just it just signifies the deregulation of employment protection laws. Mm -hmm. 
organizations, instead of maintaining and promoting for, for their um, internal ranks, they choose to at times rely on labor market intermediaries like temporary agencies for work uh, for, for staffing. That way they can be very nimble, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, temp, uh, temp health services allow employers to incur labor, labor costs only for when they need it. Mm. Uh, so um, this move allow them to uh, allow organizations and employers to have a lot of bodies in, in uh, all hands on deck situations and have a skeleton crew in slow times. Mm. Um, employers can, that way uh, employers can avoid paying for benefits for workers who are not legally attached to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so all the labor market risks, you, you can see how, how this yeah. process works, right? All the risks are shifted from the employer right. to mm -hmm. the employee, right? So all the mm -hmm. risks are shifted from the organization to the individual. Um, and and we, we also have to talk about labor unions and collective bargaining, mm -hmm. uh, how it has weakened dramatically uh, through, throughout the process. And to top it all off, culturally and ideologically, this uh, rising discourse in, of individualism and personal right. accountability at work, right? right? Uh, organizations are loudly shouting, you're on your own. Right. And um, instead of embodying a more holistic and sustainable notion of collective responsibility. So um, as you can probably guess, um, these trends are not unique to the United States. Uh, precarious employment uh, is definitely a global phenomenon. And some statistics are really quite startling. Um, more than 40% of young people in Europe are caught in cycles of low paid, temporary mm -hmm. job, potentially potentially punctuated by significant bouts of unemployment, mm. um, of joblessness too. So only one in every 5% of temp workers have been able to find full-time jobs. So this really brings into questions the, the, the narrative that temp jobs can serve as a stepping stone uh, for better employment prospects down the road, right? Um, mm -hmm. One out of five can, can get it. Um, and it is, it is very common. Um, you know, and this that really make you seem like, you know, these jobs are more dead ends than, than stepping stones. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a significant problem in Asia too. Um, so since the 1980s, the proportion of non-standard worker in Japan, for instance, has nearly doubled and now standard about a third of the entire workforce, meaning more than 20 million workers are employed under um, under really um, undesirable terms, low pay, dead end jobs, low job security. Um, in Korea, we see we hear these really heart wrenching stories about how non-standard workers are staging protests to raise awareness of their atrocious working conditions on top of factory chimneys and the National Assembly. And former protests include hunger strike, hair shaving, and even suicide. So. Um, you know, all, it's all of that is to say this is very much a global phenomenon. Um, yes, there is there, but there is variation to how countries respond to this puzzle. Uh, workers, um, in my own research uh, and in others, I have, have found that workers tend to fare better in countries that put a focus on active labor market policies, supporting workers transitioning from unemployment to work, uh, from one job to another. Um, or countries that do that do a good job of promoting vocational training and job matching. I'm thinking about Nordic countries um, as examples. So yes, there are good models about handling this um, this global phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. You should see our faces, everybody. We are all uh, so worried. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Like, what is it coming to us next? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, I don't know, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but like very anecdotally, it seems like it's already creeping over into kind of like our institution still, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't face it because we're particularly kind of like privileged in these spots, but there's a lot of people that um, I think like, you know, even though we might not kind of like call it kind of Tim Pork in the same way, it really bumps up against like some of the jobs that we make available for folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we think about the nature of the job rather than the uh, the title, right? Uh, the, rather than the label attached to it, you see a lot of uh, uh, features of the job that I'm talking about. For sure, and I want to. Well, I think. Well, before going to the, our next question, it's too much here. It's way too interesting to stick yeah. to the script. Um, but like, and I think we're going to get to this later. So just put a pin in it. But like, it is that idea that is um, of this kind of like bumping up against at least in the US like kind of narratives about like individual freedom and how that's been internalized by the people that are like subjected to these like what's essentially just like a labor market kind of evaporated workers rights right and people being like you know like kind of like internalizing that is something that's good for them is like just like a extra layer of cruelty on top of all this crap um but again we will probably talk about that later during gig work uh, for now instead right um, can you talk a little bit more about like kind of like how this like kind of serves to kind of reify and recreate and kind of further entrench kind of social in inequities that we already kind of observe and in particular kind of thinking more about like kind of like the communities um, kind of that are kind of hardest hit by kind of this like uh, kind of work landscape and what kind of some of the kind of reverberating effects this has across our society? Uh, great question. I mean, um, so Bit of history, uh, early work on precarious employment looks at mostly work-related outcomes like earnings, benefit, job satisfaction among workers. But uh, in recent years, the research agenda surrounding non-standard employment expanded beyond the employment dimensions to really look at how these modes of employment arrangement affects workers' lives, right? And in the process, uh, deepening reproducing inequality in various social arenas. So not only workers' lives, but people around them too. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back about, uh, you know, your example, Daryl, about, you know, uh, you know, how the temperament of one person in the household affect other members, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so there are a variety of outcomes that are analyzed, uh, such as workers' health and well-being, which we'll talk about in, in greater details, uh, prospect for social mobility, uh, social identity, implication for their marriage, marriage quality. Right transition to adulthood. I mean, in my own research, I have found that uh, a history of uh, independent contracting or freelancing. So it means that if, you, uh, if you're a freelancer and you're trying to transition a full-time job, your odds of being invited to an interview is reduced to a tune about 30%, which is a significant chunk, right? So, and uh, employers, so when I did this research, I was, I found, I found the number, but I keep finding myself wondering like, why, what is the story that, that goes on here? So I went out to interview uh, hiring officers and it turns out that employers are hesitant to hire freelancers, uh, not because this candidate lacks skills, but because verifying these skills is difficult. So um, when I interview um, these organizational gatekeepers, uh, a common theme that these decision makers are, a common theme that keep emerging is that these, these folks, these, these decision makers are much, much more comfortable reading a resume from an applicant with a full-time background because these candidates has been presumably been hired, trained, and systematically appraised by credible organizations, by somebody else, by somebody they trust. Um, contrastingly, a lot of uh, credentials from 
independent contractors ourselves are, are you know direct, directly from the independent contractors themselves. Um, so um, they have a lot more question for, for someone with a freelancing background. It's just not as clear to them. Uh, they might be wondering what type of client, what kind of work, what kind of deadlines, KPI, responsibility uh, that went on when the you know during the stint of freelancing. So there are just more data gaps, more mysteries, right? And um, in the context where hiring officials have to sift through a large number of applications, they'd rather deal with something that is more clear-cut, something that they can appraise with ease, something that they're familiar with, and something that has been approved by um, organizations that they are more familiar with, right? The signal is just clearer. So, and this worked out in favor of the full-time candidate versus the independent contracting one. Um, so, you know, uh, precarious work also have implications on, on, so that's social mobility, that's like, you know, prospect for labor market for build, uh, mobility, right? But uh, precarious work also have implications on workers, you know, family and marriage prospects too. So uh, existing work show, for instance, that in Japan, uh, precariously employed men make undesirable prospective partners of marriage since they are seen as unable to provide economic security for the households. Um, and work also shows that it's difficult to plan for the long term if you're in an insecure position, which, which make all the sense in the world, right? I mean, how can that? So um, and, um, in a working paper, which I'm quite excited about, uh, my colleague Lele and I, uh, we're, we're trying to show that being precariously employed also affect workers' transition to adulthood. And in particular, it increases the odds of a worker either moving back in or failing to move out of their parental home. So in other words, struggling to maintain residential independence and, be, and becoming boomerang kids. And um, we hope to share the results of this research down the road. So um, as far as uh, who and what type of communities are, part, are, are hit the hardest by this kind of work landscape, um, we, we think about how insecurity and instability affect the most vulnerable workers, right? Because they lack the labor market powers and protection. Um, I'm, I'm talking about undocumented workers, racial minorities, women. We can think about how the growth of precarious work, you know, basically a, a accelerates the disenfranchisement and exclusion of uh, disadvantaged groups from economic, social, and various political institutions. So for women, for instance, uh, exposure to non-standard work could put them in really powerless positions and being more vulnerable to workplace harassment, mm -hmm. uh, poor treatment in the workplace, um, with, with all that, be, you know, I think it's really regrettable that there's still quite a large gap in our understanding of how precarious, precarious work intersects with race. Um, you know, there's this ton of room, there's ton of, uh, of, of space for innovation being done in this space. Um, well, historically, racial and ethnic minority has been have been relegated to the secondary labor markets, um, which include low wage job with poor prospects. Um, Young black men, especially the one who are subjected to the cruelty of the uh, criminal justice system face diminished labor market prospects and could be forced into informal economy and endure significant barriers to good jobs. Um, and, you know, you open with the pandemic and in the context of the pandemic, black, uh, Latinx and Native American workers are just disproportionately represented in sectors where that has been highly predisposed by social distancing rules, right? And mm -hmm. I'm thinking about restaurants and bars and travel, transportations, entertainment, manufacturing, and retail, um, just for, for a few examples. And consequently, uh, these employers are experiencing much higher rates of job displacement, job disruption, uh, joblessness too. 
um, rather than their white counterparts, and which only exacerbate um, the historical trend for these groups. So, you know, um, there's still a ton of work to be done uh, to explore how precarious work intersect with uh, other axes of stratification to to produce inequality in the modern labor market. But um, but you know, um, the stuff we do know, um, it, it provides a good guideline, and the picture is quite grim. Yeah, it's definitely uh, not good to put it lightly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is, I, you know, I, I didn't think really about the the gendered piece of it, but that's like a really important point. Um, yeah, the labor market. It, it reminds me of like there's this um, thing going around social media about like how Cambridge is like teaching yet their women or like has a class for women to remind them to have children, right? Because like young women aren't having children, and like if you think about marriage prospects. And childbearing prospects like if you there's a lot of critique right to this approach it's not like women didn't remember to have children it's that they're politically economically socially like not supported and so if we think about many of these places that are not reproducing populations like how is it also um how does labor prospects play into a lot of this as well yeah. i wouldn't go ahead Oh, I was going to say, yeah, like just kind of like piggybacking on a little bit too. I think, and it's really kind of like neat to hear your kind of like perspective on how this spills over. Because I've been seeing like discourse, like, you know, in like popular media about people, like there was one article in particular that's making its rounds on social media today. It was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be so down on the gig economy and kind of demonize in all this way. Look at all these examples, e.g. look in kind of Nigeria, and it's like kind of like the gig economy that's developing there. They were making, it was an economist, of course, and they're making an argument that like, uh, you know, like it really helped to fill in some kind of gaps for services that weren't kind of getting kind of met by a centralized kind of state force. But then it's like, yeah, the moment that you start thinking about like all the social inequalities that kind of get wrapped up into that and how it's probably kind of like intensifying kind of like harassment of women in the workplace and kind of other kind of inequalities, it like all falls apart. So hearing that kind of like added perspective that you're bringing to it is just very much needed, I think, in this moment. Yeah, for sure. Everyone thinks it's going to be great. And then it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> about this like one. everything. Yeah. Um. To shift to health a little bit, can you share a little bit more about what are the health implications of precarious work? And, you know, one question that I thought of was um, health insurance marketplaces. Like, are they saying anything about this? Because historically, right, the health insurance marketplaces operated with employers paying for these very, very expensive plans, uh, providing health insurance to their workers. And if we have this shift to people, um, not getting health insurance benefits uh, that sort of erodes the health insurance marketplace um, in a lot of different things, like economically, but also like you don't have these young workers to pay into the system. Um, and I ask this because I'm like, who do we need to ally with? Like, who's who do we need to sell our soul to to think about this? And I wonder, is like health, our health insurance companies thinking about this and like uh, objecting at, at all to these these um, you know, to these shifts? Yeah, so great question. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, from, from our conversation, you guys can uh, can infer that precarious work can be quite unhealthy, right? I mean, this, uh, this employment condition can affect workers' physical and mental health through various pathways. Um, so precarious work could lead workers to be exposed to a variety of occupational risk factors, right? Poor working conditions, 
more adverse psychosocial factors. We're talking about odd working hours, long shifts, unpredictable wages, and low, low autonomy. And this condition could in turn lead to lower job control, affect their self-esteem, um, creating a stressful experience, have implication for workers' physical and mental health. Um, access to insurance is a, is a massive, it's a, it's a huge thing, right? I mean, as I alluded to earlier, even in the most advanced and post-industrial societies, uh, social protection schemes are so strongly tied to work. And uh, most precarious workers do not meet their criteria to benefit from social transfers or key services, um, you know, such as unemployment benefits, pensions, uh, which really hinders their social protection and the, the lack of access to healthcare coverage and healthcare directly um, affect their health. And let's not forget about pay too, right? And uh, low and variable pay affect virtually all social determinants of health, as we know, like housing, diets, right? And um, to, your, to, your, uh, to your question earlier, uh, you know, a, a, common, a strategy that I have found is that it, for, for young workers without access, for young precariously employed workers, a lot of them have strategically chosen or, or you know, I, we, we have found that they, that increases the, the prob probability of them moving back with or close to their parents to take advantage of, uh, of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of these uh, healthcare providers networks are quite local. So um, in, order to, in order to access their parental uh, healthcare, um, they need either to, to live close, close to their parents or live with their parents. Um, and you know, in, in a society where employers are not providing uh, you know, insurance, insurance has to come somewhere. And uh, one of the resources that are tapped into in dire time are, are the parental homes. So that, that is, you know, uh, parental support has been theorized as like a, as an alternative social insurance in, in, in the age of, of drastic precarity. So that is something to think about, right? Um, uh, so beyond working conditions, uh, you know, precarious work can create forms of social precariousness or social marginalization. Uh, there are some great research showing that the transient nature of precarious work, you're here one day, you're there for the next, you're not making any meaningful connection with anyone. You have reduced opportunities for meaningful workplace participation, uh, socioeconomic vulnerabilities, you know, all of these factors contribute to the marginalization of these workers and precarious work undoubtedly reduce social capital, right? Uh, undermine ties to others, uh, reduce interpersonal trust. Um, there are research that show that firms that use precarious workers or use temporary workers uh, generate adverse outcome for their full-time workers too. Uh, so, um, you know, so research in public health show that these, you know, all of these factors that I talked about, social capital, ties to others, uh, interpersonal trust, connection between self and society, those are all important resources for good health and um, precarious workers like those. So it is through these lenses that we can show how precarious work uh, create just, just really adverse conditions and undermine one's, one's health. Sure, yeah. Okay, so, all right, we've been negative, right? We're social, <laughs> well, we're social scientists, <laughs> that's what we do, that's what we do. But let's try and be like, think positively for kind of one <laughs> second, not that that's ever helped anyone. Um, and so I kind of want to think about how this kind of uh, some of the your this we work on this topic intersects with some of your work on kind of renewable energies. 
And like, I'm wondering if you see there's like a, a, if there's a pathway kind of forward and kind of like um, for getting quote unquote good jobs back to people through kind of some of this kind of like energy, kind of like renewable energy um, kind of infrastructure or that's supported, quote unquote supported by kind of like uh, kind of the US government right now, right? Like, is that a pathway to kind of getting folks back to um, kind of jobs that aren't so kind of like outwardly harmful um, as some of this gig and contract work, or is it going to require like, you know, a bigger change where we just stop having a whole economy that tries to extract as much as we can from workers all the time? Yeah, so it is, look, it is a massive infrastructure bill, right? Ones that include plans to tackle to tackle climate change with American jobs and, and American ingenuity, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it's framed as. So, you know, green jobs are are seen as family supporting jobs that contribute to significantly to preserving and enhancing environment quality. And most of these jobs will be middle skill jobs that require more than high school, more than a high school degree, but less than a four year degree. And um, it is expected that this bill will create a large numbers of jobs in, in various sectors. I'm talking about wind energy, solar energy, and energy efficiency buildings and electric cars. Uh, so many of these jobs are in constructions, uh, transportation, distribution, and manufacturing. And these could be really good opportunities for workers without a college degree. And uh, estimates really vary, but we could be talking about anywhere from 1.5 to about 4 million jobs. And um, looking at the BLS data, it seems that theoretically, uh, these jobs come with good pay. The range is about seventy dollars to $90,000 a year. Uh, decent benefits, at least at least good healthcare, possibly pension, um, some sick leave, and hopefully hopefully a reasonable schedule. We're all dealing with hypotheticals here, mm. um, but um, issues of uh, organizing rights and uh, job security are more unpredictable. But I think it is a promising start. And politically, um, a lot of these the fact that a lot of these jobs are occupied by workers who tend to be in rural areas and have less than a college degree, uh, the folks that are thought to be left behind, quote unquote, due to deindustrialization, I think that that factor could have really important implications for elections down the road. Um, so, you know, uh, with all that being said, there are important caveats to be noted. I think green, green industries clearly, like any other industries really, consists of a range of high and low skills job at a varying levels of pay, right? It, it is possible that drivers, assembly line workers, um, insulation workers, boiler makers, they might, they might still face some undesirable working conditions. Um, in other countries, we've seen almost the emergence of a green gig economy, where it's difficult, um, where difficult, the difficult and hard work of restoring the ecosystems and reducing carbon dioxide are, are done by people who are really poorly paid. Um, <laughs> Some scholars have developed the term eco-precariat, right? Which is uh, a socioeconomically diverse group of laborers that, that addresses the volatile demands of, uh, of, the, of the environmental service-based economy. And this is not just observed in the global south, but in, like, in, the, in 2018 wildfire season in California, the deadliest in the state's history, by the way, uh, a lot of the firefighting was relied on 2,000 or so prison inmates who earn just about $1 a day, right? So, 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 you know, with all of that being said, I'm cautiously optimistic. 
uh, you know, um, national policy strategies are really crucial in making sure that the green jobs that we're building are, you know, are actually trending towards economic, uh, environmentally respectful and socially, uh, hopefully empowering economy. But, um, but, you know, policies like wage requirement for green industries that benefit from state and federal aid um, you know, requirement of wage standard for government contractors, uh, labor criteria, these needs to be enforced, right? Otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, we're, we're just going to see, um, you know, if we leave this at the hands of the market, we'll know what outcomes and what we'll, we'll get. So, um, you know, I think that that way we can take the right steps to ensure that these green jobs will actually provide decent working conditions and allow workers to support themselves and their families. And, um, also, while we're on the topic of uh, environmental sustainability, the Department of Sociology at Rutgers is uh, seeking applications for tenure track applications. <laughs> hey. uh, yeah, we're trying to find someone in the area of environmental sociology, uh, climate change, and uh, survival migration and green jobs too. And it's a, you know, it, it's a great place. Uh, you know, the person will have will be able to collaborate across a broad group of partners off campus, on and on campus. Uh, we have an energy institute, a climate institute, the disaster response initiative, and um, it contributes to, you know, there, there's also a recently developed uh, major of environmental studies in the School of Arts and Science. So it's a good job of decent pay. <laughs> good level of economy, uh, decent for, for prospect for growth, of course, which tenure track position does not come with some level of precarity, but- uh, Sure. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so think about it. Come work with me. Yeah. Hey, send us the ad for that. We'll post it everywhere we can. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so the work you're doing is really important, and I think within population health, we don't oftentimes think about occupation enough, mm -hmm. even though it's it's named the occupation for a reason. We spend so much of our day to day, our lives um, at work. And so the, again, the work that you're doing is, is incredibly important. And we saw that you're a editor, a special editor for a mini conference in the special issue of working occupations that focuses on precarious work. And I'm surprised we got this far without too much mention of the giant elephant in the room, COVID-19. So we've got, you know, Mike just mentioned the optimism. So just to kind of pull us back to the unfortunate <laughs> reality that we're we're in right now. So just to get <laughs> all right. Ever the uh the reality-based person that I am. Um so just thinking about this intersection of work and occupations, thinking about precarious working, work environments during the pandemic. Um what sorts of work are you hoping to, to find in this special issue? What, what are some of the findings that you hope? Um, and where would you like to, to push the field? So thanks for plugging y'all's ad in your department. We'll definitely do what we can to promote that. But if you had to also think about expansions and contributions in this area of taking on the elephant in the room, the pandemic, and also this connection with precarious work environments and gig economy, et cetera, um, any thoughts uh, about where you like to see the field pushed in that area? Definitely. I mean, it, it is the elephant in every room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I am thrilled to, to serve as the uh, guest editor for a special issue in the Minute Conference for Working Occupations. 
my co-guest editors, Lee Jun Song and Rachel Donnelly, both at Vanderbilt, uh, would really welcome any paper that focused on the theme of precarious work and workers' well-being, widely defined um, in, during, the, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we encourage submissions from scholars of all demographic backgrounds, nationalities, career stage, um, and we're open to different theoretical frames and mythological orientation. We don't care if it's, you know, it's purely theoretical, quantitative, qualitative, experimental. We just want to read good work, right? So, um, so in light, you know, we all know that in light of this major, major. Um, social and economic upheaval uh, accompanying the, the pandemic, it is so important to, to explore how the changes in working conditions and the general social uh, uncertainties have affected workers' social, physical, mental well, mental well-being and uh, potentially exacerbated existing dimensions of inequality. And, um, you know, and in, in that light, um, how does that dynamic possibly inspire public policy debates and interventions, right? So um, there, despite some notable studies, uh, there is still a dire need for innovative theoretical and empirical visions for how the pandemic influenced well-being to precarious workers. Um, the gap in the literature, it's, you know, it, it's understandable, you know, in some ways expected, in, in some ways expected really, given the fact that the pandemic is still a relatively recent phenomenon. It is still, you know, we've been, we've been in it for so long, it feels, right? But it is still in full effect in many parts of the world. Um, so, so our goal is to bring together cutting edge studies from, uh, you know, that eventually form a thematic whole. And uh, we want to tackle various topics such as the influence of uh, employment precarity on worker mental, physical, and socioeconomic well-being. Um, the influence of employment precarity on workers' healthcare, accessibility and utilization, uh, public policy adaptation to reduce the risk of unemployment, precarious employment and workers' illness, and social disparities, um, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and social class, and global variations in all of the above themes. Uh, the deadline is November 15, so if you got a paper uh, in, in a back burner, get to it <laughs> and send one in. There you go. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you're working on a lot. This is all super important. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about your work and, and the state of work. And we really look forward to checking out your special issue next year. Um, yeah, it's been such a fantastic conversation. We could talk for hours. We say that to everybody. <laughs> we truly talk to you for hours. and. I can tell you all the jobs I worked and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Please make sure to join, uh, join us for the IAPHS virtual conference uh, next week, right? It's coming up. Um, yeah. And for everybody, we are having a live podcast session where folks will be able to drop in and chat with, chat with us about their conference experience will be on um we will tweet it out we'll share more uh i'm sorry i don't have the information right for me does anybody remember what time exactly it's like yeah it's thursday thursday from 12 15 to 12 45 eastern time cool so thursday afternoon we'll be on come talk to us tell us how your session went um it'll be a live uh live podcast um but thank you so much Glenn. super cool talking to you thank you for having me Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, we'll see you for the next one, y'all. Thanks.